0: Ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm Peter Sutherland, I'm chairman of this debate, and I'm chairman of the London School of Economics and Political Science. <laughs> the huge attendance that we have this, e- this evening is the most eloquent testimony that one could have to the group of people who will be addressing you this evening on the subject which is extremely important. <clears throat> but first of all, let me welcome you on behalf of the European Institute of LSE, and the Franco-British Council, who are in partnership in organizing this occasion. I've been asked to put in context the debate which you will shortly hear. Reflecting on that, it's suggested to me that we've gone through a period of history in regard to world trade where world trade has been at the center of politics. In the late 80s, in the European Commission, Pascal Lamy and myself witnessed the 1992 project, which was to regalvanize European integration, free movement of people, persons, capital, capital, and services, and services and goods, That brought about a regeneration in Europe of European integration. In the middle of that program, the collapse of the Iron Curtain changed forever the political environment in Europe. And then, shortly afterwards, we had the conclusion of the Uruguay Round, That was concluded essentially at the end of 1993 and then the agreement itself came into existence and the WTO, which was seen as the instrument of globalization, came into existence in 1995. That time I was Director General of the World Trade Organization and it was a time of optimism about the effects that this would bring to the world in which we lived. I remember seeing the letter of application of China to join GATT as it then was and the WTO subsequently. And it was a remarkable document which expressed the conclusion that the economy driven by state intervention had failed that competition and the development of China in a global market was the future. And that for that reason, China had decided to join the global economic system. The rule-based system that was reflected in this WTO, with its new dispute settlement mechanism, which effectively created a court for the adjudication of trade issues, played an enormously important role in facilitating the change from the command economy to the market economy (coughs) that became a global phenomenon. There were demonstrations in those days against what was happening, against globalization as a phenomenon. Cancun, Seattle and others demonstrated a concern about the direction that the world was taking. Whilst it may be a biased judgment, my view is that overall the creation of this economy encompassing most of the world has been uniquely beneficial in taking one and a half billion people out of abject poverty but it has not addressed and been able to address some of the problems in other parts of the world, not because of any malign intent or any institutional defect, but because parts of the world have been unable to play their part in the opportunities that should have been available to them, sub-Saharan Africa being a case in point. So we had, therefore, a changing world, a changing world full of promise, a camelot of its time, but it was short-lived, as we know. The various parts of the world have diverged in economic performance and in fulfilling the aspirations of their people. The growth, massive accelerated growth of China has of course also brought advantages to some and disadvantages to others. The spectre of protectionism, particularly in the richest parts of the world, has never been absent. The Doha Development Round was created as a means to bring further the liberalisation of trade, but also to address the issues of the developing world, we know that that Doha development round, notwithstanding the enormous efforts of Pascal Lamy, as Director General of the WTO and others, have been unable to bring that round to a conclusion. This is not the occasion to point the finger of blame, although I'm sorely tempted to do so. (laughs) But there are a few culprits, and they're the usual ones, except on this occasion, in my view, Europe was not one of them. The culprits have left a situation which has slowly fermented and gradually become a reality. And that reality is one which, as an old trade liberal, I find difficult to live with. Proliferation of numerous bilateral treaties all around the world. Jagdish Bhagwati, the professor in Columbia University, has described this as a spaghetti bowl of agreements the different standards, and in some cases, the powerful demanding provisions, protecting labour standards, or introducing non-trade elements into the negotiations. To some of us, at least, this has both positive and negative effects, these bilateral agreements. They should open up opportunities, particularly for the developing countries of the world. They often do not as best they could. But they also create a discordance, which is the result of the inevitable discrimination, which is part and parcel of bilateralism itself because what the WTO and the GATT rounds that brought it into existence have sought to achieve is the principle of the most favoured nation. Non-discrimination, bilateralism of its nature, poses the threat of uh, discrimination. And that brings us rapidly to the epitome of (laughs) bilateralism, which is the subject that we will be debating this evening. What happens when you have the two major trading blocks in the world forming a bilateral relationship, if it comes to pass? Which I'm not sure that it will. But if it does come to pass, what what is the effect of this? And what is the purpose? Is the purpose to provide a building block for openness to other parts of the world? or is there any belief of, by those who are fundamentally going to frame this agreement the transatlantic partnership that it will be open on a non-discriminatory basis to the rest of the world will it happen? if it does happen what will its effects be? and similarly we have the Trans-Pacific negotiation with 12 countries heading in the same direction. Mega regional trade agreements. Now the argument here is a difficult one and I'm going to stop at this stage and invite the others to speak on it. The argument is difficult because if for an example we did not have the Bilateralism or plurilateralism of the European Union negotiating in those days when we were concluding the Uruguay Round and forming the European negotiation position rather than that of all the individual member states, we wouldn't have a WTO in the first place. We'd never have got an agreement if each European country negotiated on its own. Also, what had been achieved in Europe. Provided an example for a whole range of the issues that were addressed in the Uruguay Round itself. Mutual recognition and various other aspects of creating a single market have been used as an example ever since within the world trading system. And this, therefore, is the challenge of our time. Are we going to fragment or integrate? It's played out regionally, it's played out nationally as we've seen on this island and in the attitude of this island to the European Union itself. How do we integrate? Do we integrate in a global economic system or do we do it on the basis of bilateral negotiations and differences? And that is the challenge of this evening's debate. Now, the speakers that we have this evening are really amongst the best that one could possibly have to address this subject this evening. Pascal Lamy, who will give a keynote address, has served two terms as Director General of the World Trade Organization. I knew him first as chef de cabinet of Jacques Delors, one of the two great European presidents of the Commission, and he played a very important role there, too. He's written numerous books and done various things, uh, which I won't recite at length. Then we will have Her Excellency Sylvie Berman, who is the new French ambassador here in the United Kingdom. whose experience around the world in diplomatic roles has been considerable. She has served in many missions, including in Hong Kong, Moscow, has been head of the Southeast Asia Department, head of the CFSP Department in the Quai d'Orsay, and ambassador to China. China, of course, being a key element in the mosaic which I've tried to express to you. Following the ambassador, Sir Peter Ricketts will then speak. And Sir Peter is ambassador, United Kingdom ambassador to France since February 2012, a former head of the diplomatic service here in Britain, and he's also served in numerous other places, including uh, Singapore, Washington, and has been ambassador to, to, to NATO. And finally... Peter Chase, who uh, will be the voice of America here this evening, um, he's the senior representative of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in Europe. He's been spent thirty years in the U.S. Foreign Service, a former director um, in the Department of uh, in the State Department and Office of European Union Affairs. He's also spent two years. As Director for Investment Affairs at the Office of the US Trade Representative. So he knows all sides of this debate. And after that, we hope that we will have a spirited debate, which all of you will, well, not all of you, uh, (laughs) the ones who are lucky, who look nice enough and smile at me enough, may may, may be called to put a question. Thank you very much.
1: Well,
2: good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you, Peter, for this introduction. Uh, Let uh, me thank both the LSE and the Franco-British Council for this uh, invitation. The topic of our uh, debate uh, tonight is uh, the transatlantic free trade debate, the final push, question mark. Now, this title obviously was chosen by the organisers some time ago. Had they, uh, for instance, looked at the media about the transatlantic trade and investment partnership during recent years, uh, weeks, uh, or days, Uh, they could as well have uh, replaced this uh, final push by uh, the final proof question mark because the reality I think uh, at least as I see it is that uh, this uh, TTIP is not uh, on the right track Uh, as we say in French (laughs) il est mal parti now why is it so and uh, what could be done uh, if uh, we want to redress this trajectory. That's the two points I will uh, briefly cover. Why are we in this situation? And when a situation is getting sour, you better understand why, if you want to change that. And I'm rather on the side of those who believe that the situation should should be sent, although uh, not without uh, some reservations. Well, uh, to put it simply, uh, and for the of brevity, we are in this situation because they got it wrong. Now, who is they? (laughs) They is uh, both sides, uh, the European Commission on one side, and the US administration on the other side. And they got it wrong on uh, two grounds, which in my view are major issues. They got it wrong on the narrative and they got it wrong uh, on the politics. Where they got it wrong on the narrative is that when uh, this uh, negotiation was launched and was Called a negotiation, and I'll come back to that. Uh, the impression that was given to the public uh, was that it was one more of these FTAs, uh, which everybody is negotiating, not always uh, signing, uh, but negotiating with everybody. Sort of, you know, one more of these trade sausages, uh, which the trade factory producers, uh, which are called bilateral agreement. Now. That was a huge mistake. It was a huge mistake because that's not what the TTIP is about. The TTIP is a brand new category of agreement that has very little to do with the sausages that the bilateral factory had been produced since the King of Crete signed the first treaty of commerce with the pharaoh of Egypt, That's some time ago, (laughs) Uh, in reality, what was missed is uh, the sort of denomination, the sort of presentation of what this uh, negotiation uh, was about. In a nutshell, uh, it was sold as a fly. In reality, it is a spade. And it is a spade because opening trade today and tomorrow is not what opening trade yesterday was. Opening trade yesterday was about removing obstacles to trade, most of which had the purpose of to protect the producer from foreign competition. That's what the King of Crete and the Pharaoh of Egypt did, and that's what a large part of the Dorian mandate was about. Opening trade today and tomorrow is not about removing obstacles to trade that uh, protect the producer. They are disappearing for a number of reasons, uh, which I uh, don't have time to expand on. What matters today and tomorrow for opening trade is not these classical obstacles to trade, but discrepancies in regulatory systems. the purpose of which is not to protect the producer, but to protect the consumer. It's about Car safety, it's about food safety, it's about uh, how much uh, aflatoxin uh, you should tolerate in nuts, how much uh, rectopamine you should tolerate in pork meat, uh, how much of uh, uh, prudential element you need to integrate if you run an insurance company, all the universe of goods and services. So, in a way, it's not um, anymore about protection, it's about precaution and dealing with precaution is a totally different ballgame from dealing with protection for many, many reasons. I'll just uh, give you a few. Number one, uh, you can hardly call that a negotiation. Precaution is not something you negotiate. Precaution is something you approximate, If there is a crash test system for European cars and a crash test system for American cars, the two agencies responsible for road safety are not really going to negotiate. They are going to work together and try and reach a similar standard so that if I produce cars... Uh, in Europe and I want to export in the U.S., I don't have to equip them with big bumpers and the other way around, uh, if I produce cars in the U.S. and I want to export them in Europe, I have to equip them with small bumpers, which we all know is a big obstacle to proper economies of scale, uh, uh, which is what uh, opening trade uh, is about. Second, the political economy of this uh, sort of endeavor Uh, is also very different. If I'm a tariff negotiator, and I used to be a tariff negotiator for part of my life, I know my politics. Producers are against me and consumers are with me. Producers are against me because I increase the level of competition of my domestic producing constituency, which is, by by the way, if I had an advice to give to somebody who wants to do bright political career, never touch on trade. (laughs) It's terrible. But I have consumers with me, even if their voice is not often very loud, there is a huge mass of people who are with me, because they get better prices. Now, if it's about regulatory harmonization, mutual recognition, as Peter said, which is how you approximate... The differences in regulatory systems who have the same purpose, although not always for the same level of precaution, and even if it's the same level of precaution, not always through the same method, then the political economy is the other way around. I have producers with me, because they are appetized at the notion that they will have a single standard transatlantic, for instance, which, if I'm producing cars, it's great news, or medicines. Uh, or if I'm in the financial business and I don't have to comply to two different regular systems, I'll make lots of savings. That's good for my business. But I will have consumers probably against me because consumers will probably have a feeling that the level of precaution they care about, the one they ask, the one they got, is going to be a problem and that there is a risk that this level of precaution uh, will be dumped. And just calling this a negotiation allows this fear to spread among the public, which is basically what happened. As I already said, the technology is very different. Regulatory harmonization is not a negotiation where you trade off my tariff on bicycles against your tariff on scrap metal. Doesn't work this way. And if you give the impression it works this way, whoop, then you immediately bump into a serious political problem. It works with the technology of regulatory convergence, and we Europeans know what this technology is about because that's what we did during 85 and 92. That was 30 years ago when we started and in 30 years we in Europe have done the job roughly 80% for goods and 40% for services. That tells you why, for instance, saying on both sides by day that this negotiation we started in O13 would be finished by End of 014 was total nuts. I, somebody saying this must not have looked at what the thing was about. Finally, uh, there is also a big difference in this uh, TTIP, uh, which is that it is also about investment. And that stems from the fact that investment <coughs> competence were raised at the EU level with the Lisbon Treaty, and that is now not just trade, which is federal, it's trade and investment, whereas before the Lisbon Treaty, trade was federal, and investment uh, remained uh, bilateral. So, uh, that's the first problem. It's something which is very different to what people legitimately understood it would be, and, you know, they're, they're realizing that it's not a fly. It's something different. Now, they also uh, got the politics wrong uh, on several counts. At first, and I've been saying that publicly for a long time, I'm free to express my opinion. Uh, first and foremost, when they decided, they, uh, that the mandate of negotiation shouldn't be made public. Huge blunder. Especially, especially if your intention is to start walking on the ground of precaution, where there are landmines everywhere. So if, if that's the case, if you understand what you're after, the first thing you will do is compensate through higher transparency rather than the other way around. Second big political problem uh, – has to do with this investor-to-state dispute settlement. Now, I won't enter, might discover that later, into the technicalities of what investor-to-state dispute settlement is. Let's simply say that instead of private businesses litigating against a public authority through the normal channel of European courts and American courts, an investor-to-state dispute settlement establishes a sort of special track where these sort of disputes will be adjudicated uh, in a, a specific, non-normal judicial uh, system. Now, there are pros and cons to do that. We might come back in the discussion. But the authors of the negotiation did not remember that for a part of civil society, a part of civil society which has been, uh, remains, Uh, On the side of anti globalization, that believe trade opening is bad for workers, for societies. Quite a number of people who still believe this, even even if it's a minority on this planet, Uh, if you look at serious polls. These movements at the time uh, killed the multilateral investment agreement in the 90s, which was a multilateral investment agreement, which was negotiated within the OECD, and the purpose of which was to create a set of multilateral disciplines. Now, for various reasons, they killed the result of this negotiation. And for this part of civil society, it's a big victory. They remember very well, like they remember Seattle, for instance. It was a big moment, and they scored. So, putting the investor to state right into the middle of the sausage was not the thing to do, in my view. And of course, what they've done, and this is where they got the politics wrong, is that they have this anti trade constituency, which has been there, I mean, on the US side, on the EU side. Uh, which is a relatively vocal, but not very numerous, uh, minority. But they've added to this anti-trade ISDS memory constituency a much larger part of public opinion, which is simply consumers who are told they're going to have to eat chlorinated chicken. Uh, or uh, who are told uh, they will have uh, to eat GMOs or who are told that the European standards on data privacy, which are, let's say, a bit more strict than the U.S. ones, uh, are going to be dumped. And bit by bit, that's uh, quite a large part of public opinion that you can mobilize in the name of these uh, fears about precaution. And by the way, uh, trade specialists will remember that ACTA, which was the Plurilateral Trade Agreement, which was reinforcing uh, intellectual property protection and disciplines uh, against counterfeit, uh, it happened to ACTA two years ago, what happened to the AMI in the 90s. It was killed by civil society, notably, in the European Parliament. So this warning shot, in my view, uh, should have been uh, noticed. Finally, uh, before I go to a few uh, suggestions on, if possible, how to redress this, uh, on both sides, they've gravely misappreciated uh, the change that happened in German public opinion. Peter and myself, we've been in trade negotiations for many, many years. I was European Trade Commissioner. There was one country in Europe who never had any problem with negotiating and signing and implementing trade agreements, and the name of this country is Germany. And as we know, it's not a minor country in the system. Now, Germany's public opinion today is against the Transatlantic Investment and Trade Partnership. And why is it so? Because of a number of complex reasons, the main one being that the German public opinion attitude to the U.S. has changed. In uh, 2009, polls were saying that uh, 78% of Germans would trust the U.S., the same poll was done in 2014, this year, and the result is only 35% of Germans trust the U.S. And that's a huge change. This population of well, people who trust the U.S. and Germany has shrunk by uh, more than half. And that's a problem of trust. And given what I said about... The new rounds this negotiation is entering into, which is precaution, lack of trust is a terrible thing. If you don't trust the regulator on the other side, it's going to be very difficult to get to any sort of convergence. Now, uh, let me now, uh, before I conclude, uh, try and throw a few suggestions which stem from this uh, diagnosis. First, if I were they, and I'm not, uh, I would, the first thing I would do is adjust the narrative. Adapt the narrative. Call the spade a spade. Tell public opinion what this uh, exercise is about. It's 20% old stuff. Classical market access, tariffs on uh, Uh, agricultural products or footwear or ceramics or SUVs in the US, it's 80% about this regulatory convergence issue. So this should be told, frankly, openly and explained uh, to uh, public uh, opinion. And it wasn't done so. I mean, the European Trade Commissioner once said, oh, what we're trying to do uh, is a transatlantic common market. And immediately, the communication people in the Commission, oh, no, no, well, I mean, don't, don't you care about what he said. This guy is doing gas, you know, quite often. So, no, 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 no. Because they, but the reality was, as often in uh, lapsus, uh, that was, that is the reality. Now, how far should we go? It remains an open question, but that's what, the narrative should be if you are to call things what they are and if the risk that you don't do that is that public opinion will believe you're cheating, which, of course, is a big uh, political minus. Second, as already said, uh, move to hyper-transparency. Uh, transparency is the best uh, prophylaxis against uh, rumours uh, who can easily <laughs> proliferate when it's about nightmares about risks uh, and precaution. Third, if this investment-to-state dispute settlement has to be kept, if, and to be frank, I personally am not sure it's indispensable, uh, because in order to make the case for a specific investor-to-state dispute settlement between U.S. and EU, you first have, if you're European, to say that you don't trust U.S. courts, and and if you're American, that you don't trust EU courts which is not the real good first step for a negotiation about the partnership. But let's assume some would believe there are more pros and cons. Uh, then, uh, in my view, uh, the case for this, and there are arguments in favour, uh, should be made uh, much more uh, clearly. Fourth, uh, sequence this process properly. it cannot not be a long-haul navigation. It will only provide results with a lot of time, and this notion that it's a free trade agreement that you conclude and that's it, will never work. Again, look at the European experience. So you have to explain that it is a process that we start, that, that might give results in some stages, sort of early harvest, but, but don't give the impression that we are waiting for a sort of final trade-off for uh, the thing uh, to come to life. Politically, my own stance on this uh, would be that the only way out to deal properly with these legitimate concerns about precaution dumping would be to say, and the negotiator should say it, If there is a difference in the levels of precaution, and there are differences, in some areas, EU is higher. In some areas, US is higher. If you look in detail at what happens in various production sectors, I would say if there is a difference, either of two things. A, we don't touch. B, we use the highest level of protection on either side. In my view, that's the only way uh, to move forward. And finally, uh, make it, and there I join roughly what Peter Sutherland said, uh, make it uh, something like an open agreement that uh, could be plurilateralised further than just transatlantic. There are a number of countries like Canada, Mexico, Turkey, Norway, Switzerland that are looking at that and in order to get the benefit of this agreement, which at the end of the day would probably be to be a new high-level benchmark for regulatory standards worldwide. If U.S. and EU can agree on a high level of sophisticated standards, and they are the places on this planet, like Japan, where these standards are the most sophisticated, then... It can serve as an inspiration for other trade agreements, including, by the way, on the issue of uh, social standards, which uh, a number of us care about. Thanks for your attention.
3: Ladies and gentlemen uh, thank you very much for this invitation uh, thank you to the LSC and thank you to the Franco-British uh, Council it's my first appearance here since uh, uh, six weeks ago I was still ambassador in China uh, it's uh, you, you know the, the, the position of France on this uh, TTP uh, full support but at the same time vigilance Uh, First of all, there shouldn't be any doubt about uh, France's support for reaching an ambitious agreement with the United States. We approved the uh, negotiating mandate given to the Commission on uh, June 2013, and our President assured the President of the United States uh, of France's determination to reach an agreement uh, during his last trip in uh, February. Uh, France believes that this uh, partnership would provide not only uh, significant economic benefits for European business and households, but also decisive strategic advantage for the European Union at global level. Well, it's not a French who will try to persuade you of the economic advantage of free trade, but... It's necessary to remind people that behind the theoretical benefits of opening up markets lies some very practical realities and I will uh, give some examples. Today, for instance, uh, European agricultural producers can export to the United States only after an approval procedure with the American authorities which can take up to 10 years. So this obstacle could be removed if the United States recognized the European uh, phytosanitary system as an equivalent. Likewise, an agreement would benefit European passengers who pay more for their plane ticket in the United States because European airlines are not currently authorized to operate domestic flights there. The strategic advantage is just as important. And if we manage to agree with the United States to set common standards, it will be hard for third countries not to take this into account in the future, and Pascal Lamy just uh, said uh, this. And it would be, of course, uh, critical for technical standards, and, for example, our exports to uh, China. But there could also be a major impact on social and environmental standards, which would be a benchmark to be repeated in subsequent trade agreements signed by the EU and the United States. But does it mean that we could sign any agreement? Well, obviously not. And that's the reason why France is vigilant on some issues. Uh, first of all, well, and you won't be surprised, We are vigilant on the defense of certain markets for which greater state intervention is justified. That's the case, you wouldn't be surprised, with the cultural sector, where France, but also other uh, European, uh, are keen to defend and promote the uh, European cultural industry and identity. And on this specific point, I note that several British filmmakers uh, such as Stephen Frears, <coughs> Mike Lee, and Kane Lodge, but also some American uh, film directors such as David Lynch mm-hmm. supported that approach in order to preserve artistic diversity. And moreover, the last Festival jury, President Steven Spielberg, called the cultural exception the best way to support uh, diversity in filmmaking during uh, the closing ceremony remarks. And when I was in China... Uh, the, the letter, the open letter from our Minister of Culture, was translated into Chinese and supported also by Chinese uh, film directors. So it's not only uh, to defend or to protect a system, it's also uh, really for cultural reasons and to preserve diversity. It's not in the mandate, that's good, but I wanted to explain why. Because sometimes Fran, France is criticized for what is called uh, a cultural exception. We are also uh, uh, vigilant on other issues. Uh, we are attached to preserve and promote social and environmental norms and standards. We are vigilant also on the scope of the agreement. France is supporting the partnership because its very aim is to go beyond reducing custom duties and cover what are commonly known as non tariff uh, barriers. Uh, There are areas less known to the general uh, public, covering subjects like technical regulation and public procurements, but they include the majority of the benefits expected from the partnership. And this agreement would be unbalanced uh, if they were only uh, partially covered. And finally, we must also be particularly uh, vigilant about how the partnership is perceived by members of Parliament, civil society, and the public at large. And also, Pascal Lamy mentioned it, it, transparency is a key issue. And uh, it's a political necessity. This negotiation would be useless if we don't have the support of the public and Parliament along the way. And there is a genuine risk. That's the uh, reason why. We set up a strategic committee in France and to bring together all members of civil societies and uh, MPs. Uh, it's uh, the reason why also we wanted to have a public mandate, and uh, while well, it has been done in the uh, beginning of, of October, we think uh, it's uh, very helping because we don't want to give the impression that we try to conceal our tri- trade objective from our own uh, citizens. And uh, we uh, are also uh, interested to um, arouse the interest of the uh, Parliament and uh, on the protection of this investment, and, uh, well, the uh, investor-state dispute settlement mechanism which could be useful but uh, which has to be understood and that's the reason why there is a consultation on the way on this issue and we wait for the, for the result of that and I understand that there's always be, there's been um, uh, 150,000 people who gave their uh, uh, opinion on, on that. Well, so this uh, uh, agreement would cover a range of issues which are uh, technically and politically uh, complex. Well, uh, the title, the final push, seems to evoke a desire for an agreement to be reached fast. But uh, as you see, well, this is, of course, understandable. But, uh, well, it's very difficult to cover all those uh, issues and uh, even on issues such as geographical indications and access to public procurement. And uh, so it will uh, probably take time and uh, also I agree with uh, what uh, Pascal Lamy said. And uh, I would like also to, to conclude this time by saying, well... We want to sign a real and balanced agreement, not an agreement at any cost, because the risk is that we turn what should be the first trade treaty of the 21st century into the last trade treaty of the 19th century. Well, But I'm confident that we'll achieve this goal. So thank you very much.
1: thank you very much indeed,
4: everyone. Um, And welcome to London, uh, Madame Sylvie Berman, uh, as the new French ambassador. And thank you, Pascal, for what I think could well be called magisterial presentation of of the problems, as well as some interesting solutions. Um, When I was ambassador in NATO, uh, the Secretary General was George Robertson. And when the Late in the debate when the 25th, 26th and 27th ambassadors put up their pencils to speak, he would say wearily, um, everything has been said, but I see not yet by everyone. And I feel a little bit like that, uh, coming on late like this. Um, can I also just put this in another context? The LSE have been very kind and, and thank you all for coming. This is also a Franco-British occasion, and we have both the British and the French chairs of the Franco-British Council in the front row here. This is an organisation that has uh, inspired and um, enabled and uh, convened for debate between French and British people for for more than 40 years now. Um, And that's why Sylvie and I are, are on the panel, not that we are trade experts. Um, and so I just want to spend two minutes on the Franco British sociology of trade policy uh, before coming to a couple of points on, on TTIP. Um, bearing in mind that I can't go back to the Queen of Egypt as Pascal did, but I think one of the first free trade agreements of the modern era uh, was negotiated by Richard Cobden in 1860 uh, with Napoleon III, I suppose. And so we do have a history of discussion of free trade between France and the UK. And I just want to caricature um, quite unfairly, but I've sat through many discussions of trade policy between French and British ministers, and I'm, I do find that culturally it's interesting because we tend to come at it from rather different angles. So, uh, in caricature, um, a French minister will say, of course, we agree with free trade in principle, um, but will the other side deliver? Um, look at public procurement or other markets like that. And so we've got to have really strong, tough reciprocity instruments to force the other side to deliver. The British Minister hears, ah, here we go, Uh, the French want to threaten to close markets, whereas what I want to do is open markets. The UK Minister then makes his pitch and says, of course our... Initiative is to reduce barriers, tariffs, non-tariffs, open markets. Um, we've got to give a leadership role, so we should be opening our own markets and then taking the moral high ground, forcing our, uh, our opponent to open theirs uh, as a result. Uh, and anyway, it'll be good for our consumers because it will reduce prices and, and increase competition. French Minister hears, ah, here we go, the British want to disarm unilaterally uh, and what will happen, That the opponents will come and take all our markets off us. This is a sort of cultural difference which I think is quite deeply rooted and is probably linked to different attitudes over over many years to globalisation and and the balance of risk and opportunity uh, that globalisation offers our society. I think that that's a bit now passé, although still an interesting observation, because when we come to TTIP, as the ambassador said, I think actually Britain and France are approaching it in much more similar ways than we did in the past. Um, And I listened with real interest to what Pascal said, and you're a much greater expert than I am. But I found it actually rather depressing uh, and worrying, because as seen from London, the TTIP is one of the few really big opportunities to kickstart trade and investment uh, at a period where our economies are, or none of them, doing as well as we'd like. We'd all of us like to see uh, a boost to growth, boost to investment, Um, and the TTIP seems to us at least to offer in principle uh, a way to do that. of course, we would all have preferred to work towards uh, the Doha Agreement that, that um, Pascal Lamy worked so hard to achieve, but that seemed to be a bit like an oasis in the desert, always just receding in front of us, and we never got there. And so. Certainly in London, our feeling is let's, let's do what is doable, and if doable is the prorilateral agreements, let's do them. Let's first of all complete the single market in the EU. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done to derive all the benefits in the EU, uh, in the area of uh, digital services, for example, in the area of energy. Uh, we're far from having a single market in the EU, so let's get on with that. Um, but also, let's get on with the TTIP. It is an area where we had uh, some enthusiasm from President Obama and the U.S. administration, as well as from the European side. We are the two great trading blocks in the world... Of course, it's not mostly about uh, reducing tariffs, as you said, um, but there are enormous gains to be had. If we could overcome the difficulties which uh, Pascal Lamy points to, and we we calculate in the UK something like £10 billion a year to the British economy, if we had a fully successful TTIP, there will be many people in this room much more able than me to to say whether that is true, but even if it was a part of that, it would be a very valuable boost to growth at a time uh, where we all need it. Your points about this is more about addressing the issue of precaution rather than protection, I think, are very interesting. Um, And clearly we need political leadership to explain to people what the issues really are. I'm not quite sure. I mean, it's dangerous to to, um, question uh, Pascal Lamy, but I can see that in the question in the area of food security, for example, or GMOs, of course, that applies. But public procurement, is that an issue of precaution, financial services? I mean, I think there are areas where uh, it is still um, some good old-fashioned um, uh, instincts to, to protect the home market that we need to address, even with the US, even in TTIP. And we do need political leadership to uh, get over some of these myths that are, as you say, uh, prevalent now in, in uh, the media and our societies. Um, people think that this will... Um, interfere with national decisions on public services and how they should be run. We don't believe that they would. Nor should they lower food standards. You're quite right. If we are arguing for lowering food standards, we will never win the debate in public. Um, And we must make sure that we... correctly explain the investor state dispute settlement clauses um, to make clear that it would still be national laws which apply. uh, This new judicial uh, panel that is being uh, proposed would not have uh, any right to, to override national legislation. And regulatory coherence, if we can get there, would help our businesses, including our small businesses. So there is something valuable to work for here. And I just wonder, listening to the areas that Pascal has set out, whether part of the problem has been that this is an area of Commission competence in the EU. Therefore, it is natural that political leaders would leave it initially to the Commission to make the running. And perhaps that was an error. I think certainly my Prime Minister and my government here uh, are very keen to go out there and make the case proactively for uh, getting a TTIP the best we can, Uh, no doubt it will take longer than we hope, but it shouldn't take uh, longer than it absolutely has to because we need this growth uh, and that political leaders in Europe should perhaps take up some of the strain of explaining to public opinion why it's a good thing. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. Uh, Let's get now after our uh, US speaker quickly to the debate and let's have the Franco-Britishness of the debate a little bit uh, in the foreground as well. Thank you very much.
1: I don't know if this mic is turned on, is it? Can you hear me? Then what I'd like to do is I'd like to go to the discussion very quickly. Rather than get up and talk at you, I'm just going to give a few remarks because, first, this has been fascinating. Your analysis, uh, Mr. Lumi Pascal, is 100% correct, but I'm going to make you happy because... I believe strongly that the United States and the EU can do this agreement and they can do it quickly and they need to do it in part, as you said, by improving the narrative and explaining clearly what it is we mean when we say do it clearly with respect to regulatory issues in particular. One of the things about changing the narrative is I always say to everyone I talk to is stop using the words non-tariff barrier to trade. Because regulators, their job is to protect our citizens, our consumers, our environment, our financial structure. Their job is to stop trade in unsafe products or services, whether those goods are made domestically or foreign. So if you look at a regulator and you say you're a non-tariff barrier, they look at you and say, you're damn straight I am. That's my job. <laughs> so, you know, so, you know, if you're going to work this, you have to work it with them. You have to think about how you're going to do it. And the reason that I say that we can do this agreement and do it quickly is because this is an area where architecture matters, where form matters. First, an underlying concept. You know, everyone, I used to be a diplomat, so I did this too. We all talk about values. We've got common values. I'd like to suggest that democracy is an operational issue here. There is, We are both democratic, we're both high income. It sets a different stage for regulatory cooperation. Democracy matters because there is a direct relationship between what the citizens and the voters want and the level of regulation they demand of their politicians and of their regulators. There's an operational, it works. It doesn't reflect just the view of, quote, the government. It reflects the view of the people. That we're both high income means that we demand high standards, and so we should. We can afford them, and it's part of who we are. That translates into the level of regulation that we have. And the whole thing about finding a way to do this regulatory cooperation in TTIP is to make sure that everyone understands that this is not about going to TTIP, it's not about going to the content of the regulation on either side. The question is, is TTIP able? Can we build a bridge between in those areas where we have similar levels of safety? Okay. We have a beautiful mutual recognition agreement in the single most regulated product in the world. It's large civil aircraft. Every single nut and bolt of a big Boeing or an Airbus meets government set standards and norms, right? We also happen to have a huge trade dispute in that area. And yet, our regulators know and trust each other to have said, if the European Aviation Safety Agency says a new Airbus is airworthy, the US government accepts that and vice versa. That's the sort of thing we can get to if the regulators know and trust each other. They believe that the level of safety is the same. And they also believe that the regulations are enforced adequately. It's not just the level in the law. It's the level of enforcement. Pascal mentioned that there there are places where the U.S. has higher regulations. There's this kind of tougher regulations. There's this belief that in the United States we have weaker regulations. And yet, Sylvia mentioned perfectly, it takes 10 bloody years to get the FDA to come and certify a food manufacturing plant as being safe. I'll tell you that the precautionary principle is rampant among American regulators. And they have very, very strict standards on medical devices, on medicines approvals, on baby chairs and things like that. We actually have many places where we have similar levels. And the question is, if you're using TTIP to build a bridge, you can build it where you've got similar levels. If your levels are this far apart, TTIP is not going to build a bridge. It will take time. And then, last point, this gets to the architecture. The architecture in this agreement should be the following. On regulation, it should talk about all the traditional stuff that we have in the WTO—SPS and and, uh, technical barriers to trade. You should talk about regulatory practices and principles, how you do good regulation domestically. We believe the same thing: the need for transparency, participation, and accountability. We've already done this agreement, but we just—we can write it into this as well. Then you have horizontal provisions that generally discipline the regulators that do the following. They say that when you regulate, you must think of what's going on in the other side. You must inform yourself about what the other side does. You put that in as a requirement, and I can spell that out in more detail how you would do it, but you never predetermine what the outcome is that a regulator or legislator chooses to do because that has to reflect, in the end, what they want as a democratic system. That... Those general propositions apply to all regulators, and here's the key. You then have annexes, and the annexes are single pieces of paper, and they say at the top, pharmaceuticals, the Food and Drug Administration, European Medicines Agency, DG SanKO or DG Enterprise, or whoever the regulators are, and then it's hyperlinked through to, re- to agreements that are made between the regulators themselves. You do it. Mr. Lumi had it perfectly. You cannot have, and as a matter of law in the United States, it would be illegal in any of them to have trade negotiators negotiating away regulatory protections. Those must go through a legal process. And if you have these annexes, and if people understand, that it is, the regulators themselves that are choosing whether or not this bridge is going to get built that they have control of it, then many of the concerns that I think people reasonably have about, am I going to be trading away a level of safety? Is this going to bring in chlorhynchon to my my plate? Or whatever the case may be. By the way, FDA would never let European poultry into the United States because it's not clean enough, just leave it. But if if you have this structure, if you have this structure, then people can say... If, if they have trust in their regulatory regulators, if they have trust that the regulators are working with someone else, then the narrative becomes not trade, but how do our regulators work together so they become more efficient and more effective in protecting our people. That's what we need to do. Thank you.
0: Just to start the Q&A, uh, I'm going to ask a question, a short question of Peter. Um, how do you answer the argument that this is a rich man's club that will not be open to the rest of the world and would set the standards for everybody else in the world without their participation?
1: It's actually very easy. Because remember my image of I've got my rules now. Europe has its rules today, right? The U.S. has its rules today, and those rules are there. That is the rich man's club. Is the rules that we have today? Those rules make it almost impossible for African, for people who grow produce in Africa, who export that produce here to Europe. To export it to the United States because our Animal Plant Health Inspection Service has not gone to Africa to find out whether or not they're doing a good job te- keeping the pests, making the food safe. So the rich man's club is there. Okay, Let's not kid ourselves. The question here is, well, we're just saying, look, hey, maybe if that produce that's made for the European market and meets European standards from Africa. What if FDA and APHIS said, you know what? The European people have looked at that and they already think it's safe enough. Maybe we could too. Now, do you see what I mean? That would be a real opening. This is not a rich man's club in the sense of we're ganging up against the rest of the world. That's garbage. Can they join it? Here is Now, here's an interesting thing. No, seriously. No, no, no. Think about it. Think about it. This is an interesting thing. I'm an American citizen. I want the food that my children have to be safe. If I believe that my regulators are good, I'm going to trust them. But they are politically accountable. They need to make sure that when food is imported into the United States, it meets the standards. Regulation, as Pascal said, regulation is not trade. Regulation is not trade. You do not multilateralize regulatory cooperation. It comes only if the regulators know and trust the regulators on the other side.
0: Okay. Open up.
1: <clears throat> this good.
0: lady in the fourth row. You. I'd be grateful if everyone kept it very
5: Concise. Okay, um, Linda Forscher. Um, take several, yes. Okay, um, I have to say first up, I really don't know who you think you're kidding. Um, there's there's no growth in this, and there's job losses. Um, how strange that none of you have mentioned the uh, the the dominant role of big business in pursuing this agreement and in the new regulatory structures because that is the core of it, but it's been completely missed out. Uh, I do have two specific questions, um, which anyone can answer, and if you can't answer them, perhaps um, the lead on TTIP in BIS here, Mr Edward Barker, could answer. Um, is the, uh, first of all, is the cultural exemption really a full exception from the TTIP because that has implications for the exception that people are pursuing here for the NHS. And the other question is um, the... Uh, the, there's strong feeling against TTIP in this country as there is across the EU amongst the public and there's also in this country uh, a majority of people who want to be out of the EU. Can anyone answer uh, whether if we come out of the EU we are tied to this agreement or our countries being um, signed in separately as well as um, uh, together into the agreement?
0: Thank you. Thank you. Questions? Yes, this gentleman over here in the right. Yes, fourth row, third row.
6: Hello there, my name's Sam from Friends of the Earth. I'm, thank you very much for the presentation tonight. I'm not going to berate you, I'm just going to ask you a question. Um, so you, you said, uh, that, that wasn't a dig, by the way. Not, um, but, but I just think with the Friends of the Earth moniker, you might think that's where I'm going to go with it. But, um, so, uh, trade deal for the 21st century, I would say one of the biggest market failures at the moment is... Cl- that you can see is climate change. So my question is, seeing that the CEPR studies for this have said that the, by 2027 TTIP will have increased greenhouse emissions or at least sent in the direction in that way, the fact that the EU is using this agreement to push for the removal of the 40-year ban on oil exports from the US, the fact that the fuel quality directive has been weakened in the recent weeks due as a result from Canadian lobbying through that agreement and also with the US pressures, is... The T-TIP combati- compatible with our climate objectives, and if not, why are we pursuing it?
0: <clears throat> Gentlemen, up on the tenth row, grey, wearing a grey. maybe the
7: fifteenth uh, Good evening, John Davis, um, pri- um, private person. Um, uh, uh, I noticed that nobody has yet mentioned uh, the concept of sovereignty uh, in the sense that if, for example, the UK wished to nationalize the railways and we had previously uh, privatized them or if we wanted to nationalize anything in in the UK, um, presumably under TTIP, we wouldn't be able to do so. Um, Also, of course, as um, as regards climate, Surely we don't want to be uh, having more trade, more planes, more of anything (laughs) like that. We've got to contract. Otherwise, we've lost 50% of the animals on the earth in the last last 40 years. Everything will collapse and the web of life will go as well. So we cannot. We could have greater equality, but less trade uh, and a smaller economy. Thank you.
0: This gentleman down, down, down further, the gentleman wearing the grey anorak. And, yeah. Hi, my name's Obi. I'm actually, um, well, I was reading that uh, Cecilia Malmstrom pointed out actually that TTIP is actually good for small businesses. Uh, can the panel give uh, some concrete examples of uh, how small businesses will uh, in fact be better able to uh, penetrate the U.S. Mar- the US market? market so we can actually um, spread the matches out. Thank you. Okay, I'll, I'll take a few of those questions. Pascal, which ones would you like to take?
2: <laughs> <laughs> All of Whatever. All of them. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no,
0: no, no. No.
2: Let's take the last one. Uh. <laughs> I, I can take them all if you want to. Uh, it, no, no, I'm, okay. I'm your obedient servant. You uh, know more than we do. On small business, I think the case can be made convincingly. Yeah, I'll, I don't know whether it works or not. I think the case can be made convincingly that. Uh, Reducing the entry ticket to the global market or, let's say, for European to the American market and for the American to the European market, uh, helps proportionally more small business than big business. Uh, if, if today I want to go global, let me take a sort of virtual example. I'm in a business somewhere in this planet, I want to go global export. I have to pay 5% tariff, which is the average worldwide weighted tariff. I have to pay 10%, which is the cost of red tape, if I want to cross a border, which I will have to do if I want to go global. And I have to pay 30% because of these regulatory discrepancies that stem from different level of administration of precaution. So my big problem is not the tariff. I have a problem with border crossing, but that's for the WTO and it will happen. So let's say that will be cut by half in 10 years and I'm left with a 30%. And the 30% is not that much a problem for a big multilateral company that can pay armies a lawyer uh, to understand these different regulatory systems and let's say politely adjust to them. If I'm a small business, I can't afford that. So these obstacles to trade are of major importance <coughs> for me. Uh, on environmental standards, uh, that's right into the question of whether or not you approximate, you adjust the level of environmental standard in the U.S. and in Europe. And mind you, I looked at that in detail, it depends. The Americans, for instance, don't have diesel cars. We have diesel cars. And the reason why the Americans don't have diesel cars is that it's bad for the environment. Now, what is true is that there are diesel trucks, and the reason for that is that the truck lobby in the U.S. is pretty solid, as we all know. So it differs, it depends, and there is no sort of single thing like, we Europeans are environmentally fine and they are terrible, nor the other way around. By the way, the precaution principle was invented in the U.S in an environmental legislation, which was the air pollution legislation of 1972. They invented the precautionary principle. They've moved from that since, but we imported it uh, from there. Finally, nationalisation, nothing in a bilateral investment treaty would prevent nationalising a business if a country wants to nationalise a business. The investment treaty will be probably about what is the process that you have to establish in order to pay a fair price to the person who owns this business. That's what the bilateral investment treaty will be about. But no country will accept to erode its sovereignty in uh, cases like that. And by the way, if you look at the existing bilateral investment treaties, and you've got thousands of them, uh, that's roughly
0: uh, what's in there. Okay, um, I'll do the sovereignty one if I may. If, if a country were to leave the European Union, and subsequently <coughs> the question was asked as to whether it was still part of the treaty which it, entered, it had entered into in regard to the TTIP, it would, it would be out of it. It would have to renegotiate. It's exactly the same argument as arose in relation to Scottish independence and what would happen if there had been a yes vote in Scotland. Uh, One imagines that the problems of renegotiation as a country would not be difficult, particularly for the United Kingdom with the United States. Um, I don't think it would be insuperable, but the immediate effect, I think, would be that um, if Britain were to leave the EU, then the various treaties which the EU was subject to wouldn't be vitiated insofar as Britain was concerned, and it would have to negotiate any external treaties itself again. Um, The reference, I'll also try and deal with the the issues, issues of sovereignty. The issue of sovereignty is not an issue in the case of this treaty as Pascal has just explained. It's nothing comparable to the issue of sovereignty and the sharing of sovereignty in the European Union when you can use national courts to enforce treaty rights, European rights. This is a purely intergovernmental treaty which uh, in terms of repudiation or denial or responding by leaving it, you would carry a political price But it wouldn't be legally impossible to repudiate obligations under the treaty. I mean, we're watching at the moment the whole issue of the Convention of Human Rights, which is under the Council of Europe uh, and not part of the European Union, and Britain possibly withdrawing certain rights there. It's the same basic argument. Peter. Peter.
8: I
1: have, I have thoughts on all the questions, but I think that they've been adequately answered. I hope they've been adequately answered, and I think it'd be good to go for another round of questions. Uh, sh- shall I just deal with, with climate change then? I mean, oh. it, yeah, it, of course, it's – uh,
4: <laughs> as you say, it's important. Uh, and indeed, our French colleagues are holding the, the COP21 Global Climate Conference in, in December next year uh, – My understanding is that it would not be possible to pass a TTIP which lowered environmental standards on either side of the Atlantic. So I think it's clear that any TTIP outcome will not lower environmental standards. I mean, there's a more general point about how we're going to reconcile growth, which I guess we want because we want jobs uh, and we want increasing prosperity, and our climate targets. I I don't think anything in a TTIP is going to make it impossible to pursue uh, green growth, uh, low carbon growth, and maintaining environmental standards.
0: Next question. This lady here, the fourth row, on the left.
3: Thank you, Aline Dussain. Just a quick question on the role of the European Parliament. I think, Madame Lambert, you mentioned that the French government has set up this group to educate members of the civil society, but I I understood that it also includes members of the European Parliament, from what I understood from what you were saying. Is that because governments are anticipating any difficulties in getting a deal through um, the, uh, the European Parliament after the end of the negotiations? My question especially in, is asking in the context of the latest 2014 European Parliament election and the new leadership at European Parliament level.
5: Thank you.
0: Uh, yes, Mr. de Boissieu.
8: Christian de Boissieu, i Professor at the Sorbonne in Paris and co-chair with you of the Franco-British Council. Uh, Merci. Thank you very much, Pascal, and the other panel. But no one talk about exchange rates. My view is that you cannot decouple the debate about trade from the debate about exchange rates. And you know, The the context today is a context of what was called a currency war. Whatever, uh, you know, ambiguous could be the expression. And from this point of view, I want to have your reaction, even if it is bilateral, the issue about the exchange rate between the US dollar, the euro, the pound sterling, and also, I would say, the yen and the Chinese yuan is not out of the debate. At some point, you must introduce the monetary dimension which you cannot fully decouple from the trade aspect.
0: One more question. Uh, gentleman with the beard here in the fourth or fifth row on your left there, yeah.
6: I just wanted to ask about jobs because you didn't seem to mention that too much during any of the talks and as I understand it I might be wrong but I thought the CEPR said that they estimate that something like a million jobs will be lost between the both in America and between one and two million between the EU and the US so I was just kind of wondering when, when we were quoted this figure of £10 billion or £500 <laughs> per family Obviously, if somebody hasn't got a job, they're not going to be £500 better off, and this is in 2027. So I was just wondering, how can we be sure, or why should we think that these benefits are going to accrue to everybody and not a certain section of society?
0: Okay, we will, we will take the first question from the lady on the left. The ambassador will be with
3: Um, Yes, I think uh, uh, Mm -hmm. now public opinion are more and more important and the role of parliaments also, the European parliaments, national parliaments, and I think everybody should be involved and afterwards be able to uh, answer or to vote uh, responsibly.
0: Um,
1: Sure, I'm happy happy to take uh, both of them. On the question of exchange rates, yes, of course there's an exchange rate dimension to the economic relationship between two countries and their relationship with the world. The question is, do you need to solve it in a trade agreement? And the answer is no. So I, but everyone is cognizant that exchange rates are there, and there are many, many other issues there. The question about jobs is a really good is a good one. It's the one that people are always concerned about. You know, I worked for a couple of years with a, a Democratic senator from New Jersey, who had to spend a lot of time explaining to his constituents why it was that trade was good, what it was that trade did, and there's the question of I personally think that if you have a country where there's no trade at all, okay, pretend there's a country where there's no trade at all and the country grows, and the economy grows, it will never grow evenly. There will be one part that grows more quickly, another part that grows more slowly, some parts may even, even as the economy is growing, some parts may go down, as other parts go up. That is just endemic to change and growth, that things go up and down relatively or not. And the job of governments is to help their citizens Adapt to that change. Now you enter the you you bring into this equation no 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 country is an island no man is an island yeah (laughs) and the fact of the matter is we're all bound together so you've got trade and interaction between us interaction that brings a lot of good for at least you know when. I spent a lot of my time my life in Asia. I feel enriched by what I've meant, what I've learned, the the Asian art that I've done. Trade for me has been good in that sense. But trade for my daughter has been very difficult because even in the professions there's an impact on globalization. You don't get a law degree from a big law firm and immediately make 16,000 billion dollars, right? It's changed. This is a change that all of our societies are going to go through as we, grow and change, uh, as we grow. TTIP will create growth. It will create net new jobs. And people say net new jobs, and that's very important. Because in that term net, some people may not benefit as much as other people do. And that's where governments step in. The job of government is to help people adjust to the change that comes. But do you want to deny other people the opportunity that can come with growth and this is this is a public policy issue that I think any government and any politician needs to address how you manage change and TTIP, I think will bring growth it will make many people better off it will challenge others and so let's try to address that part of the challenge
2: I think we should Take more questions. Uh, on the whole, I disagree with uh, De Boissieu on exchange rates. Uh, uh, and I agree uh, with uh, Peter oh, Chase. I ideas? Ideas? Uh, sorry. I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> and the, the problem that they, they have to switch the microphones each time. Uh, I disagree with uh, De Boisseux on exchange rates and I agree with Peter Chase uh, on jobs uh, and uh, the reasons why I agree with you and why I agree with you are in a book which is called The Geneva Consensus and where I explain why I disagree with you and why I agree with you. Buy the
0: book! Buy the book! (laughs) Uh, One question not answered. SMEs... I think SMEs are actually a major beneficiary of trade liberalization and particularly regular, reg, regulation liberalization because they're the ones who can't carry the costs that multinationals can carry and can are equipped to deal with of having different systems and different standards in different parts of the world. So SMEs are generally positively affected, I think, by trade liberalisation. We take two more questions and then we call it a day. There's a gentleman here on the right with the beard. No, down, down a bit. This, uh, down a bit here. Um, there.
2: Can you speak on your microphone?
7: Okay. Uh, I think Peter's first question was the most important question about whether we can extend the benefits of the agreement to the outside world. Of course, it's a big question. The APEC forum has completely collapsed using the word regional, uh, open regionalism, meaning apply everything to everybody else. But can I know the question to NAFTA? If we have an agreement between the United States and the European Union, does it automatically go to Canada
1: and Mexico?
7: Peter, would you like to?
1: But the, sh- the short answer is no, it does not automatically go, just as it does not automatically go to the countries of the European economic area. It affects them. There would be a question, and I think that there would be some negotiations. In fact, the EU is bound to tell the United States that we should be negotiating similar deals with Norway and Switzerland and Iceland, Liechtenstein and Turkey. Um, and similarly, I mean, the EU and Canada are just closing a deal now. They're negotiating the Canada-EU trade agreement. There will, they are talking about improving the agreement they have with Mexico. All these things will be informed by each other. We wanted a little bit less of a spaghetti, spaghetti ball, I think, is the term that was used.
0: Um, I take this gentleman here, third row up, or second row up.
9: Hi. Um, I understand that three weeks ago, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy said that he'd like to run for president of uh, France again, And in that same speech, apparently, he said that uh, whereas previously he told Total that they can't frack in France, his stance has changed and he now says that the precautionary principle condemns you to paralysis in the face of choice and that now he believes that one should adopt the responsibility principle, the one in which you take responsibility for your own actions. If this is what we have coming in France and fracking is happening here and we are concerned about fracking. Isn't it all too obvious that fracking and TTIP are just another excuse for extreme energy and that he's just trying to show his credentials and it's all just part of that kind of thing?
0: One more question. Yes, this gentleman up here on the right with his finger up. Yes. That man in your rice, just in your rice, your, your rice, you were walking up. <laughs> you give it
4: to Hi, you. My, my name is Tim Philikroft. Um As it's been reframed that it's all now about... Uh, um, just precautions uh, why can't the whole thing be transparent I just, I just don't get why it's not 100% transparent I mean, not just about the mandates but the whole thing needs to be transparent so everyone can see what's going on and everyone can have an input into the kind of decisions that get made
0: I'm, I'm going to have to curtail the questions now and I will just ask everybody if they have any final comments to make on the panel, either through the questions or more generally before we conclude. And I'll start with you, Pascal. All
2: right.
1: You um. <laughs> <laughs> there you
2: go. Okay, on, on what you just said on transparency, I couldn't agree more. Uh, that's roughly what I think one of the things they've done wrong is on transparency because they haven't anticipated enough the sort of reaction which people would have uh, when you start uh, dealing with, uh, with precaution. On the outside world, uh, that's an important question, and my own personal view on this is that WTO should be given by its members a mandate for overseeing and monitoring regulatory convergence. Hmm. Hmm. There is ground for that in the two agreements in WTO that deal with sanitary and phytosanitary measures and on technical barriers to trade. So there is some ground for that, but there is nothing like, and I'm talking to specialists, an Article 24 that says that you cannot establish tariff discrimination without a price which is liberalizing essentially all trade. You don't have something like this for sort of regulatory preferences and that's because at the time where these arguments were made, the issue was mostly with uh, the tariff issues. So I think the WTO should be given a mandate for that and that would allow non-participants with a sort of request for transparency to be aware of what happens. But I also agree that if I'm an African exporter of flowers, I have a maximum pesticide residue standard in Europe that I have to match if I want to export my flowers. I have another one in the US, which is different, the U.S. one is administered in a way where the EU one is administered in another way. If they harmonize their level of content of maximum pesticide and if they harmonize the way they administer it, that's going to be good news for me. I'm going to be able to accept this market in much better conditions, which, by the way, is the reason why, at the end of the day, when the Euros did the internal market, there was remember of this syndrome about Fortress Europe. Nothing like this happened. The people who wanted to export on the EU market were absolutely fine with Europeans getting a level playing field because it's also leveled by them, for them. So that's, that's the sort of external aspect which I think we also need to keep in mind.
1: Any further comments? Peter? Um, yeah, I mean, first I... I The issue of transparency is underlines, in fact, what I was saying about this whole issue of regulatory cooperation. First, I think both in the United States and in Europe, in general, we believe that things can and should be, our political process can and should be transparent. When it comes to regulation in the United States... There's something called the Administrative Procedures Act that requires everything that our regulator does. Any change in regulation must be placed on the web, must be accessible to all, that anyone, anyone in the world can file a comment saying that that change in that regulation has an impact on me, and our regulators must respond in writing to the substance of every complaint they have. I personally would like to see something a little bit more robust, a little bit uh, in Europe, because they have some aspects of this, but some they, they don't. The whole idea of regularly responding in writing to every substantive complaint received is not there. But I think that... If you understand that that's the legal reality in the United States, by definition, nothing that's agreed under, under, the, under this that affected US regulation at all could be untransparent. It would have to be transparent. It would have to go through that process. And I think that this is an important thing to say. The, the question about fracking, look, TTIP per se, says nothing about fracking. It's not, that's a decision that member states, the EU, the United States, and for that matter, states of the United States, they make the decisions about the level of protection that they need from using a certain technology and its impact on the land, on the geology and on the water and all of this other stuff, right? You know, what's interesting is in those states where they are, have found su- su- uh, substantial amounts of hydrocarbon resources using horizontal drilling and fracking, the people, if you talk to the environmental regulators of the state who are accountable to their people, you know, those environmental regulators will say, I'm doing a damned good job making sure that fracking doesn't hurt fracking per se. That's Well, that's what you talk talk to them talk to them okay and that's a dialogue that's a dialogue to talk to the regulator no, look, but that's their job me, mm-hmm. you know
9: that's not
1: true okay but we're getting off the point is i'll talk to you I'll talk to you afterwards okay but the point here is that there is not going to be in ttip anything about those domestic regulations of what's allowed in your territory The only regulatory cooperation goes to products and services that are traded between, not the regulations within the countries. (laughs)
8: Ladies
0: and gentlemen, on your behalf, I would like to thank the panelists for their
6: contributions and